First of all, I just want to uh, introduce myself, um, Kevin McCollum, married uh, to Michelle McCollum. Our family has been at UBC for just over 18 years. So our children really only remember this church. Most of them, this is the only church they've ever been a part of. And so we're just grateful. We're just grateful to be here. We're grateful for you. Certainly uh, thankful for this church. Thankful for the way that you're, uh, you as a body have loved us well over the years. And especially thankful for you that have taught my children and watching them grow up in their own faith. Classes like this, children's classes, um, nursery the people in leadership, um, it's just been an amazing place for us to be. So we're, we're thankful to be a part of it. Um, Want to say quick happy birthday to Silas, my son, who turned 12 today, who's here. So uh, if you see Silas, give him a happy birthday. So, um, well, well, let me start by um, giving some appreciation to Chris Sutterfield. Chris, thank you for four great weeks, a lot of prep. Uh, Chris has done a tremendous job just laying a great foundation for us. Uh, as we, we continue on. Chris has shown us that this naturalistic worldview, so Chris's box, this prevailing worldview, is not only inconsistent, but it's actually nonsensical. If you believe that all of the world that exists is within this box, that nothing exists outside of this box or the known world that we live in, then it begs the question, where did this world come from? Where did the pieces come to make this world. And of course, if you're a naturalist, you have to believe somehow within the box were the components to create itself. So out of nothing came something, which of course we know can't be possible without something outside of the box making it possible. And so we're going to move forward with that, with that assumption. And we're going to begin to look at a few items over the next five weeks that are maybe a little more pastoral in nature. Okay. So this today is almost like a hinge. We're going to build upon this great platform that Chris has given us, and we're going to look at um, three things over the next five weeks um, through a couple of different lenses. Today we're going to talk about this thing called the problem of evil, and we'll define what that is. Um, in the next two weeks, Sam Dawson is going to talk about the reliability of Scripture, and then we'll, I'll come back and spend two weeks on the resurrection, and then we're going to end our class with some final thoughts and, um, and answering some of your, your questions. So the three of us will be back. So hopefully that helps you understand where we're going. Now, I hope for you that are more philosophical in nature, this has been extremely profitable. And for those of you that are looking for things to be very pragmatic, this has been extremely profitable as well. And I do recognize that both groups are here. And I recognize that there's another group that have a drug problem. Okay. You've been drugged into your living room by your parents. It's way too early. And you may or may not want to be there. So let me just challenge you this morning. If you have a drug problem, lean in, listen to what, what we're talking about, and hopefully um, we can keep, keep you going forward. Um, all right, well, before we start, let me, let me pray for us. Father, we know that it, all truth is within you. God, that it's revealed in your word. It's revealed by your Holy Spirit to us to give us understanding. We pray, Father, that as we have a conversation this morning about this apparent conflict, problem of evil, God, that you would give us great insight, give us wisdom, give us understanding. Father, I pray you'd give us vision to how to take the gospel forward to those even who are skeptical about logical things or illogical things. Uh, Father, pray this uh, time would, would please you in the way it's handled and uh, that both from 
myself and from the listener. Lord, we know we know your, we need your Holy Spirit, God, to guide us. And so we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a little background on how I got the topic, the problem of evil. Chris and Sam and I actually have had a couple of lunches together. And one of those lunches, we lined out the syllabus and who would teach what subject. And I remember thinking it was going really well. Remember really being engaged and it really made logical sense on how we were going to divide this class out and who was going to teach what until after I left the lunch. And I began to reflect on it and I thought, now how is it exactly that I got to sign the baby? I don't know, Chris, what you and Sam conspired while I was away, but I ended up with this topic. And as I started my research, it didn't help that the first resource I picked up said this, objections to theism come and go. Arguments many philosophers thought cognate 25 years ago have disappeared from view. But every philosopher I know believes that the most serious challenge to theism was, is, and will continue to be the problem of evil. And he goes on and says, so don't take it lightly. Well, hopefully we're not taking it lightly. This thing called the problem of evil is, is really the, um, a debate, or a position that has become really sort of the calling card for any skeptic. Um, an atheist will say the problem of evil is, is not unlike this card right here. So if you play the game of spades as I do, you like card games, you know when this card is in your hand, it's a guarantee that you're going to get a point, right? You may be one point away from the bid, you're playing your hand, you may be 8, 10, 12 hands away, but man, when this card is in your hand, you know in the end, you're going to make, you're going to make your bid. You're going to win that, win that game. And I think it, that's the way it is oftentimes for those who oppose the faith with the problem of evil. They feel like all they have to say is wait and have a dialogue and eventually say, God's good. Where does evil come from? The ace of spades. Well, let's define it. What is the problem of evil? Um, the problem of evil is actually just a formal title. Okay? And it defines a quick uh, understanding of a debate. And it circles around this question. Could a world containing evil have been created by an all-powerful or omnipotent, all-knowing, omniscient, and an all-good being? Let me read it again. Could a world containing evil really have been created by this omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent being? And what they say is it's not possible. This is logically inconsistent. Now, skeptics, atheists would be excited if we would, if we would take one of those characters and, and downgrade them. Like if we decided to say, well, okay, maybe you're right. Let's fix the problem by making God less than all powerful. That would excite them. That would, in their mind, alleviate the tension. And yet, obviously, we would be abandoning a tenet of the faith and the character of God. So, so that's the debate. If he's not powerful enough, if he's not good, all good, maybe he's all powerful and all knowing, he just is a little bit evil, then that would solve their problem. Or maybe he didn't, he didn't create the world. It's when you're having this conversation to an atheist, this debate is like setting a, a mousetrap. If you could imagine that as they're having the conversation and they say, look guy, you say you're Christian, Guy says, yeah, I'm a Christian. He says, do you really believe that God is all-powerful? Well, yeah, I believe he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. Well, do you really believe, too, that he's all-knowing? That mousetrap tension begins to go. And he says, well, of course, he's all-knowing. 
Every Christian believes that. Well, do you believe then that he's also perfectly good? Well, yeah, I believe he's perfectly good. Is there evil in the world? Well, yeah, look around, there's evil in the world. And then their final question is, did that God create this world? And as soon as you affirm that that God is the creator, trap closes. And they feel like they've got you. That's the way the the debate goes. Now, for most of us, we probably haven't had a lot of formal debate in this idea of the problem of evil. Um, but we've heard this debate come up in, in other non-confrontational ways with statements like this. How could God let this happen? Why would God take my job away? Why won't God heal my sickness? How can you believe in a God who allows so much suffering? My mother was a devout Christian. She suffered from cancer. I can't believe in a God like that. God's goal for me is to be happy and I'm not. Can't believe in that. I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. Similar questions, all getting at this idea of the problem of evil, but in various packages. Well, let's address it. So this is a really big topic. And so to help us a little bit, I want to break it into some smaller pieces that are maybe a little more bite-sized, okay? First thing I want to do is I want us to talk about what is the real problem of evil, Then I want to give a little bit of a pastoral response to some of the challenges to God's nature. And then we're going to respond to the logical and evidential complaints about it. So more of a logical complaint. And then I want to give you some pastoral advice. So we want to talk about the real problem of evil. We're going to dive into some pastoral things related to the challenges of God's nature to build our faith. And then talk about the logical objections and then give some advice. So the real problem of evil. So the problem of evil I think is aptly named, okay? Uh, it's, and it's not for the reason that atheists think that it's aptly named. It's named because evil in itself is a real problem. It's a problem for the Christian. It's a problem for the non-Christian. And it's not a logical problem. It's a problem in us, okay? We know that sin affects every area in all of human experience. Romans 3.23 tells us that sin, um, everyone falls short of God because of sin, Romans 6.23 tells us that we all walk around with a death sentence, a right payment because of that sin. Sin permeates every one of us. Sin um, leads us to death. But we have to believe that sin nor temptation can be attributed to God himself. Okay, it's important to understand. Look at James 1. I think that's up uh, in your handout. James 1, at least the reference, 13 through 15. James says this about this problem. He said, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So immediately with James, we see that evil is outside of God and that evil and God are not friends. Okay, now we, if you've been in the church for a while, if you read your Bible, this is not a shocking news for you, but it's important for us to understand that evil and God aren't friends. Evil does not come from within God, and God does not use evil to draw one, anyone, to sin or to evil. Okay, he doesn't use that. And, but he goes on, he says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So our selfish desires are what lead us to evil. It starts within us. And the result of that is ultimately death. Now, 
Why do I tell you this? Well, one of the reasons is to understand that all of us and the atheist apologists for sure has to deal with this reality that sin is tainting every one of our perspectives. It taints, it gives us um, less than full understanding, right? It taints their thoughts, it taints their motivations, it taints the, the logical arguments, their presuppositions are all tainted by this thing called sin. And Chris talked about this from the beginning. So when we talk about apologetics and we wanna argue these logical, these logical uh, tenets, that doesn't in and of itself lead people to faith in Christ, right? We have to proclaim the gospel. The gospel is the thing. The gospel is the message that liberates the sinner, right? So apologetics is important, but we're always, when we're talking to someone who denies Christ, we're always arguing with someone who has 2 Corinthians 4, have a degree of blindness about them. They can't see what they can't see. And according to Romans 1, as Chris told us, they have a moral opposition. They don't want to surrender to God's moral standards. And Psalm 2 even tells us the kings of the world unite together against the Lord and his anointed, not wanting their moral constraints put on him. So evil, sin, really is a problem. The only solution is the cross of Christ. The only solution to this problem is by Christ's substitutionary work on the cross as we repent and respond to him by faith, okay? So the real problem of evil, this is all we need. So let's talk actually, let's transition now, what is evil, okay? And I realize I'm blowing through this really fast. We have a lot to cover this morning. So what is evil? The question then too is, is God the author of it? Well, we're gonna talk about our good friend Augustine again. You've probably uh, recognized that he's a pretty important character as Chris has brought him up several times as well. So what is evil? Augustine around the turn of the fifth, uh, the fifth century uh, made, a, made a realization and wrote, wrote um, a book and he talked about how God created the world out of nothing, okay? And, but he did not create evil and he didn't cause its occurrence. And you say, well, how is that possible? What, what Augustine goes on to say, he says, evil it does not have an existence of its own, but he says it's a privation of that which is good. Privation or a corruption of that which is good. So when Augustine looked at the world of evil, he didn't say uh, there's a yin and a yang, <laughs> that God made good, there's a good force out there and an evil force and they're equal. What he said was, that evil is actually a corruption of that which is good. And I'm gonna walk through maybe uh, to make that point a little illustration. Let's just talk about creation. Go through the first three chapters of Genesis quickly. Number one, and I want you to say, at what point did evil enter? At what point is God the author of evil? All right. So God decides to create the world, no evil there. God creates the world, he creates the context, he creates the inhabitants for that context. We see no evil in God. God creates man and woman. He creates them in his image. No evil there. God gives man and woman a free will. No evil there. God creates angels. Gives angels a free will. Those are, that's a good thing. Well, God gives them a garden to live in. He gives them a task to, uh, to manage the garden. At what point we see no evil in God. God tells them that there are rules in the garden. There are certain trees that need to be handled in certain ways, gives them the authority to manage that. Again, we see no evil. 
God's free will angels, but the third of them decide to corrupt that free will, use that free will to turn upon God, doing evil. They meet a man and a woman, our, our, our parents, they have a free will, and they convince them in their own free will to conspire against the holy God and the fall. God, God punishes them for that rebellion. He blocks entrance to the, the garden so they wouldn't take the tree of life and he sends them out into the world. Now, at what point do we see God as the author of evil? And Augustine would say he's not the author of evil. God made an angel, that's good. God gave that angel free will, that's good. That angel used the free will, corrupted that free will, used the free will for selfish gain, thus bringing evil into the world. So does that, does that make sense, the difference? Is that you could track in with that? Someone may say, well... Look, um, what about Satan here? You know, like, why would God make Satan our enemy? Well, didn't he create him to be our enemy? Well, I'm going to submit to you that God did that out of grace and mercy and kindness to you and me. You see, when, the, when they conspired against God, you have Eve and Adam and Satan, the serpent, talking. When God comes down, God tells him in Genesis 3, their punishment. Genesis 3.15, he makes a fascinating statement. He tells Eve that I am going to um, make you and the serpent enemies. I'm going to put enmity in between you. See, God did that. He made them enemies. And I'm going to make your offspring enemies with his offspring. And then a day will come and one of your offspring will crush his head. Okay. So what's he saying? He could have said, listen, you guys like each other so much why don't you just be friends? You conspired, go conspire. And he would have been justified to do that. But he didn't. In his mercy and kindness, God made them enemies. He put enmity in them. So why is Satan our enemy? Because God's kind enough not to let him be our friend. He's kind enough to protect us from him. Does that make sense? A quick example of how we could see something so evil, and yet if we understand what Augustine is getting at, we recognize that this is just a corruption of something that was good. And God had this grand, grand purpose. Okay, uh, Genesis 5.20, another great example, pretty classical text. You've got Joseph. Joseph's um, brothers have sold him into slavery. The end of um, the story, Joseph meets them again. He's in the king's palace, and he tells them, you meant evil against me. That was your intention. The intention of your heart was to do evil against me, but God meant it for good. So is God, what is evil? We have Augustine's understanding of evil and is God the author of it? We have scripture's understanding that no, he's not the author. Uh, is, but is he really in control? So let's look at some of these things from a pastoral standpoint. Is God really in control even when we suffer? And I think that's when we struggle, isn't it the most? Like when we begin to, you know, things that we don't like begin to happen to us and around us. It's when we start questioning things. And I remember a sermon here that Mike Lumpkin preached one time, and he said, you know, when you're struggling the most, when you're suffering the most, you need to grab hold of the biggest doctrine you can hang on to at that point, right? God exists. God is good. God is faithful. God is kind. And you hear that a lot of times that people are suffering. How are you doing? God is just good. God has just been so faithful, right? We, we recognize that. The psalmist in Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. 
He's in the heavens. He does all these pleasing. God doesn't have a desire that he can't meet. God doesn't have a mission he can't accomplish. God doesn't have a purpose that he can't bring to pass. Not only can he, he does. He does bring them to pass. Psalm 147, the psalmist says, Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. His understanding is beyond measure. Okay? God is in full control, even when we suffer. And he does understand what you're going through. See, again, a lot of times we reduce our suffering to just anything we don't like. Look, this is bad. Bad means I don't like it. But we have to recognize that we cannot put God on trial and somehow how he's not in control. He can't do anything about it. He can. Or that he doesn't know what I'm going through. He does. And yet, yet you're still going through of it. And to some, that creates a problem of evil. Because if I were your dad and you were suffering the way you're suffering, I would change the situation. I would fix it for you. I just don't have the power and I don't have the knowledge of how to do it. So either God isn't good or doesn't understand what's going on or he doesn't have the power to do anything about it. But the resolution to the problem of evil can't involve any alteration of God's nature and character. There are two really prominent things that have bubbled up, I think, in my my lifetime, and I'm seeing them pretty common on college campuses. I have a lot of conversations around these two things, and I want to pause and just warn you about them because they fit this topic, okay? One is something called deconstructionism. How many of you ever heard of deconstructionism? Anyone? A couple of people, three or four. Deconstruct, it's really a literary term where you take a book and you break it all into pieces and you build it back the way you want the book, the way you understand the book to be. The author's intent doesn't necessarily matter. The you know, the setting of the time doesn't necessarily matter, but you're able to take that book, deconstruct it, and make it mean what you want it to mean, even if the author disagrees with you. Well, that, this is really trendy right now in Christianity. And the deconstructionist will do something like this. Imagine that you're out in the parking lot and you've got a car. And you look at your car and you go, yeah, I don't really like this car anymore. So I'm not going to go get a new car, okay? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm smart enough. I'm going to take my car apart piece by piece. And I'm going to lay every piece of my car to the smallest particles I possibly can. And I'm going to lay them all over the church parking lot. And then I'm going to walk around and go, you know, I really like this steering wheel. I'm going to, I'm going to keep that. And then you, you search for, you know, those spark plugs are new, real shiny. I'm going to take those. And you get where I'm going. And you begin to pull parts from the car. But you're not, you know, you're not a really fan of your seats. They're not very comfortable. You're, you're not really a fan of the distributor because you don't even know what it does anyway. And you just make, make your decisions, right? And in the end, what do you have? What do you have? Junk. <laughs> in the end, you have nothing functional. You have nothing but a pile of parts. But people are doing this in their faith. You can search online. You can watch YouTube videos of people that are talking about deconstructing their faith. And they're doing the same thing with the claims of Christianity. You know, I, I like everything about Jesus, except I don't like that judging piece of him. I like everything about the Bible, but I don't really like the Old Testament. Let's unhitch it. I like everything about love. So I'm just going to like make sure I keep all the love passages, but I'm going to get rid of anything that seems a little bit off from that. And so you begin to deconstruct your faith. Let me warn you of deconstructionism. 
If you're not hearing it now, you have friends, I guarantee you, that are talking about it. I was on a phone call two weeks ago with someone who believes one of their purposes in life is to help people deconstruct their faith because she herself was hurt very badly in a church and can't believe that this is really what God wants here. And so she's creating her own God, the God of her own making, and she's helping you and I create gods of our own making to satisfy us. And she said it's deeply meaningful, deeply satisfying. But we know it's meaningless, meaningless. So beware of anyone that has a low view of God's sovereignty. Anyone that has a low view of God's sovereignty and feels like you need to break him apart and refix him, make him up, put makeup on him. The second one is open theism. Now, open theism has been around for a while, but it's kind of a resurgence lately as well. Here's what open theism says. Open theism says, okay, I believe God's all-powerful, and I believe he's all good. Those two things are really satisfactory to me. But I don't understand how God could be all-knowing and there still be evil. And so what open theism says is God is perfectly good, perfectly good and perfectly powerful, but he doesn't know it all. He's not all-knowing. So he explains it like this. Let's say we're having this conversation and someone rushes in the back door to do us harm. They're armed. It's one of those nightmare scenarios that we, we read about. We just pray never happens uh, here. And something really terrible and tragic happens. Well, you and I would say, hopefully would say, if we acknowledge God's true character, that that didn't surprise God. We may not understand it. It may be a mystery to us, but we, we don't have the freedom to say, well, God's character needs to change because he didn't know. What Opus Theus would say is God perfectly knows the past. God perfectly knows the present, but God's limited in understanding the future. He is a better predictor than you and I, but he's not that much different than us in understanding what's about to come. So the reason God would allow someone to storm into our building and do something heinous is because he didn't know what was going to happen. And neither did we. So therefore, God can't be culpable for evil because God couldn't stop it because he didn't know it was coming. Does that make sense? Now, you may think, that's crazy. Who believes that? Well, a lot of people do. A lot of people do. It's become probably one of the most sort of satisfying theological uh, positions for those that just can't get over this problem of evil. But of course, you have to eliminate hell as a process. You have to take a different view of sin. Um, but, and it is popular. You may have heard of theologians such as Clark Pinnock, John Sanders, Dallas Willard, C. Peter Wagner. These are all people, and there are many others who espouse this open theism. So beware of open theism. Okay, questions about those two things particularly? Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, so is God really good? Can God really be trusted? Um, isn't this the question that serpent gave in the garden, right? Did God really say? For God knows, you see, we have that. Is God really good? Can he be trusted? Well, I, I read already Genesis 50, Joseph's statement where he tells his brothers they meant evil, God meant it for good. And he can tell us now why he thinks God meant it for good. Okay, he says to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
See, Joseph had a really limited perspective, but he was able to look at God's situation and, and said, look, you meant this for evil. God meant it for good. Why? Well, here's what I see. He wanted to save the lives of the Hebrew people, of the Israelites. They needed food. There was a famine. Egypt had the food. And so God put Joseph there to save his people. So even Joseph, in a very limited perspective, in real time, could look at his brothers in the face and say, well, look, here's God's got a good purpose. I can justify it here, even in my own limited perspective. And don't we have even a broader perspective? We know now that not only was God preserving them for that day, he was preserving them as a people so that he could call them out as his covenant people, display his glory, deliver them continuously, and eventually bring about the Savior of the world as a, as a son of, these, of the Israelites. Right? So we see that God was doing something even greater than what Joseph saw. And even Joseph saw it. And that too is God's kindness. Is he really good? Can he be trusted? Paul knew this in Philippians 1 as he's writing a letter from a prison cell. He tells the church this. He said, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, this was a little-known sect in the Romans' world. And here Paul is saying, look, you're worried about me being in jail. I can see in my limited perspective with what's right in front of me that God has already sent the gospel message out to the imperial guard, and everyone knows that Paul is here because of Christ. And most of the brothers, he goes on to say, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the world without fear. So Paul doesn't say, in spite of my circumstances— even though I got thrown in jail and God's great messenger didn't have the freedom that God thought he should have, God's still going to use it. He's going to work out these things anyway. That's not what he says. Paul recognizes that God is the cause of his imprisonment. Prison is his, God's method. Paul was the tool God was using, and the gospel advancement was the effect. Does that make sense? Paul was confident in that. And we see that all things work that way, right? Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those that are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose. He will meet his purpose. And all the things we see in the world, no matter how mysterious or how hard they are to swallow, God uses to accomplish that purpose. He works those out for good. Not as if they surprised him, like God is the divine reactor, like open theism would say. God's not re-putting the parts together every time a tragedy happens. But God himself is working that as Paul knew that his imprisonment was God's ultimate plan. And we had to, he, he knew God had a greater purpose. If you have time, and I'm going to read a little bit of this. I probably don't have time for this, but this is so good. Philippians chapter, I mean, Lamentations 3. Okay. Most of us know 22 and 23. We love to get down to that part. But let me just see, let me get you there for just a second. Listen, listen to this. He says, Jeremiah says, I'm a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into a darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again all day long. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He's walled me in that I can't escape. He's made my chains heavy. I cry out for help. He shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He's made my paths crooked. He just goes on and on, verse after verse, giving God credit for afflicting him. 
Skip down to verse 16. He says, he's made my teeth grind on gravel. He's made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers that it has bowed down within me. So Jeremiah is just done. He's just done. And he knows God could do something about it. And he puts God squarely on trial where he belongs and says, this is you, Lord. You're letting this happen. You're doing this. Your hand is upon me. You've walled me and you've broken me. At one point he says that your arrows are, you're firing a quiver full of arrows through my kidneys. But he continues, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. And here's the verse we love to put on our wall. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. You see? So even Jeremiah in his lowest, worst time looks and says, yet I know that I know by God's goodness and his spirit that his steadfast love endures forever. And I would submit that only one who's been redeemed can know this intimacy and understand it. It makes, it's illogical. It's illogical to the lost world that a guy like Jeremiah in that situation would turn to the very one who's afflicting him and said, but your mercy is new every morning. All right. Well, hopefully with our faith a little bolstered, we're going to dive now into some um, of the more philosophical um, responses. I'll pause right here. Any questions or any just comments, clarifications? Okay. Okay, well, we're going to now again, hopefully tethered a little bit about, away from every wave of doctrine that crashes upon us. Let's address the arguments from a logical and an evidential perspective, Okay. So our opponents would say that there's a logical problem of evil and there's an evidential problem of evil. Okay, so let's talk about those. A logical problem is that it's a logical impossibility. It's impossible logically that a being can be all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, and create a world where evil exists. So it's logically impossible, okay? The evidential problem says look, we know there's evil in the world. We know people suffer. We know cancer is real and hurricanes are real and all these things are real. Because of that, we have to believe rationally that it's logically improbable that a good God made all this. Do you see the difference? One, it's logically impossible. It doesn't make sense logically. The second is, look, the evidence shows that it's highly improbable that a good God would pick this world to create. Okay, makes sense? All right, so let's talk about the logical, some people call it the philosophical, or the deductive approach, okay? They're all the same, or I'm going to lump them together anyway. The deductive approach, or the logical approach, okay? This one has had significant focuses over the past centuries, and it really, as I just defined it, it's just a test of possibility. Is it possible? Is it possible, okay, that a all-knowing, all-good, all-powerful God could create a world with, with evil in it? Is that even possible? Okay, and really you could look at it as a math problem that's disconnected from reality. It really doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter what you want the answer to be. It's supposed to be this logical sort of math problem. Is it possible? 
And for really the past century, sort of the prevalent view academically around um, debate has been, no, nah, it's not possible. You can't, you can't do that. Um, and it seemed to satisfy atheistic philosophers. But the debate has been back and forth, really, from the beginning. Again, we want to go back to Augustine to the rescue. Um, what Augustine tells us is, no, it's not only um, logical, it's absolutely possible, and in the end, necessary. And what Augustine would say is, as we talked about before, that God made the world, okay? Man was given free will, but it's because man's corrupted that free will, he lives out his life with moral evil. So evil can exist. It's not illogical because God didn't, the good God didn't make evil. He made good free will. But because free will has to be free, it has the ability to choose and, it, and man has chosen the wrong path. That makes sense. So it's not illogical that a good God would make evil. It's logical and necessary that a good God would make free will really free, truly free. A will that only can choose good is not free will. And so with that, you're going to have evil. It's, it's actually necessary that evil is there for, to prove that the will is free. And so he says that that's not illogical. Um, but that to some, they feel like Augustine made too many truth claims that are more biblically based and, um, and they put too much weight upon man. But then a guy in the 1960s named Alvin Plantinga, and if you haven't heard his name, you probably will. The more you study apologetics or the more you read about philosophy, Alvin Plantinga is really a significant guy. In the 1960s, he was a PhD student in Yale, and he wrote a volume on this very topic. And what he did is he challenged this notion that it's a contradiction, that these things being all-knowing, all-good, all-powerful, and creating a world with evil are logically consistent logically consistent. And he did a really a brilliant job. He did a brilliant job and really changed the debate. Um, and it really in the simplest form, if I could say God, that Plantinga basically introduced a statement in the debate. He said, look, God is all powerful, all knowing, all good. God created a world with evil in it. And Plantinga says he had a good reason to do so. Now to you and I, that sounds really simple. But he was able to flesh that out philosophically in such a way that it actually changed the debate. Um, Ron Nash, who wrote a book, Faith and Reason, actually has produced a list of atheist philosophers that have conceded that planning is right, that actually it is possible that these things could happen together. And as Nash says, that, that in itself is nothing short of miraculous. If, if you want to know more Plantinga's book, God, Freedom, and Evil, would give you plenty to chew on if that's, if that's what you're looking for. If not, this book, uh, Faith and Reason, Ron Nash, is also, it's very um, philosophical, but it's really, it's strong. It's really good. Uh, and then Chris has some other resources he's put on there from Sproul and others that I think are really, really strong as well. Um, so what Plantinga did was shift the debate now from it's impossible to it's improbable. So it doesn't mean that all these people that conceded that Plantinga was right all of a sudden believe in God or a deity of any sort, but they did have to begin talking about the probability of it. So that takes us into the evidential argument, okay? Experiential or an inductive approach. Um, so go, the argument goes something like this. Look, you're a smart guy. We'll go back, a guy left. Evan, you're a smart guy. 
Chris, you're a smart guy. Like, look at the world that we have right now. If you were an all-good God, would you make this world? If you could do anything, if you know everything, if you are perfectly good, would you create this world? I don't think so. That's highly, highly, highly improbable. Well, let me respond to this. That's just nonsense, in my opinion. Because how can we who aren't an all-knowing, aren't an all-powerful, we're not an all-good being, have any understanding of what it's like to be one? How would we know what world we would create, having being that God, if we're not? If our perspective is finite? So we're put on trial to say, come on, you're smart. Why would you make this? And so it goes back to me to the same argument that Plantinga said is, look, God had a good reason for it. And if we were all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, we would understand it. And we would agree that this is the best world that God could have created to accomplish his purpose and and uphold his nature as all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. See, there's no real contradiction to the problem of evil. Now, the more philosophical arguments, if you want to get there, um, kind of three areas that a, a philosopher will focus on in debating this, okay? One, look, it's all because of sin. Because of free will, you know, man has rebelled, and so the world's broken, there's sin. That's, that's an easy one, right? If I were going to create a world, I would create a free will. And if I create a free will, it's necessary for that will to be fully free, which means they would sin. Um, they'll use sanctification as an argument. You might say, well, look, God's goal isn't that we live in paradise on planet Earth. God's fitting us, sanctifying us for the real paradise to come. You know, if you want to be a physician, you're going to have 12, 14 years of grueling education to get there. And if you want to live with God in perfect union for all eternity, then you need to go through this world to be sanctified and be prepared for that. That's an argument that someone might give, a theist might give, give back, okay? So I think that, so just, I guess, to summarize, we don't get it. there's a, the logical debate, is it impossible? The answer there is Plantinga says, look, God has a good reason to do it, and he argued that it is possible. That debate is largely dying, um, at least in um, those who, who keep up. And then the inductive or the experiential just says it's improbable. Like, you really can't. If you look around. But, of course, then that puts us in the position of God with our limited perspectives, trying to understand what we would do if we were, which is a lot of conjecture. All right. When you're addressing someone who doesn't believe and they're coming at it from an atheistic perspective, the majority of them, as Chris said, will have a naturalist worldview. Again, they believe there's the box. The only thing that exists is in the box and everything can be explained within the box, right? I think personally that it's helpful to help them see the inconsistencies of their belief system. And Chris did that well. So I would encourage you to go back and review the last, last four weeks. Um, and it works. I, I was reading about a couple of um, former atheists, Sarah Stonebreaker, well, they're probably still atheists, but um, says that she read a work by fellow atheist Peter Singer, where Singer argues that apes and pigs have a greater right to life than children with Down syndrome. That was his natural conclusion of his atheistic worldview, that apes and pigs have a greater right to life than children with Down syndrome. It was consistent. It was logical. It naturally flowed from a naturalistic worldview. 
She writes, the implications of my atheism were incompatible with almost every value I held dear. You hear what she says? The implications of my atheism were incompatible with almost every value that I had. So she understood by her own conclusions that this isn't right. This can't be right. How can I value these things and have a view where they're inconsistent? Another philosopher said he was rattled when a young girl asked him where music came from. Where does music come from? I don't know. I don't know. Experiencing love, beauty, music, creativity, community, friendship. These are all experiences that atheists could relate to, but naturalism has no answer for. No answer whatsoever. You know, what about morality? No answer. I will submit that if an atheist thinks a Christian or a theist has a problem of evil, they have an infinitely harder problem with goodness. If we have a problem in their mind of explaining evil away, they have an infinitely harder problem to explain goodness. Chris talked about one, uh, one apologist who said, oh, well, we're our DNA, it's chemical reactions. We're some tech soup that has come up with some moral code to the evolutionary process, which again, that's nonsensical. You remember Ravi Zacharias was asked that simple question, like, hey, what about evil? He says, look, if you say there's a problem with evil, you say there's a good. You say there's a, then you have to say there's a universal standard of good and evil. Then you have to say there's a moral lawgiver. And so the, the natural byproduct of this atheistic worldview or natural worldview will take them, paint themselves into corners they have no answers for. And there are things that are common that are everyone's experience. Again, think about beauty, think about love, think about community, think about music and friendship. Let me just address it before we move on pastorally. Listen, I understand that there's a lot of great philosophical arguments against the problem of evil. And I understand when someone questions how could a good God fill in the blank, that we may have some great, we do have some great arguments. And you may be a person that loves to lean in with these, these philosophical debates. But let me caution you that there's a difference between the classroom and the hospital room. Okay, there's a difference between the classroom and the hospital. When, when someone in the classroom asks, how could a good God let evil happen or bad things happen to people? Well, then press in, lean in. That's a philosophical conversation. But when you're in a hospital with someone and they're asking, how could God let this happen? Why would God not heal my child? That's when you need to leave the philosophical hat in the parking lot. My suggestion there is to say nothing. Nothing. And it's because of this. I think your presence is a great apologetic for God's kindness and goodness. Just being there. Praying with them. Comforting them. Standing with them. Helping them. Okay. So just a word of caution pastorally. Not every conversation about the problem of evil is philosophical. Right? Um, and I would submit too that the church is... Loving mobilization through you on their behalf is another great apologetic for the existence of a kind, good, loving God. And we experienced that when our house burned. Some of you, most of you know, just over a year ago, you know, we lost our, our home to a fire and this church rallied behind us. That very night while the, 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 the house was still burning, there were several of you gathered in a circle around our house singing it as well. That's what we needed. That's what we needed. That was a great apologetic for just God's mercy and kindness. 
And we know in Romans 2 that that kindness leads us to repentance as well. Gives us a good gospel opportunity. All right. So how do we, let me conclude, I guess, to say how we deal with suffering as a Christian matters. How we deal with suffering as a Christian matters. I would say this is also a primary apologetic in your life. It's good to have a verbal apologetic, but your life is also an apologetic. First Peter 3, Peter says, In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. If you're not, if there's no hope in you, they're not going to ask, right? This implies that you're living a life, trusting Christ, affirming his goodness. There's a hope within you, and yet you're going through something that a lot of people would be hopeless in. You're Jeremiah. You're Jeremiah saying, I am beat down, I'm done, I'm over, and yet I'm reminded of this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're good every morning. Great is his faithfulness. So always be prepared to ask for those, but do so with gentleness and with respect. So how do we respond to suffering in that way as a Christian? I will just submit to you, it's by faith, just like we, like we respond to everything else, by faith. And do that through community in the church. The truth is God is all-powerful. God is all-good. God is all-knowing. And we respond to that by faith. Also, let me encourage you, a few weeks ago, John Henderson preached a great sermon, and it really, in the end, was an apologetic for the problem of evil. So if you haven't listened to it, you should go back and listen to it. I don't remember, three, four weeks ago, um, maybe further back than that, but you should listen to, to his sermon. He talks about people in suffering and challenging God on his goodness, his sovereignty, and his wisdom. Sounds pretty familiar with our debate today, right? Those three strands, and he affirms that God is good, God is sovereign, God is wise, and he just kind of walks us through in about 45 minutes of this great apologetic, the problem of evil. So again, a great assignment for you would be to go and re-listen to John's sermon and understand, understand his apologetic. If we're not careful, we can have a very limited perspective on this issue, and the lost world always has a limited perspective on this issue, we look at it through our own eyes. Habakkuk did that in chapter in one thirteen. He says, um, tells God, he says, your God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So he knows that. It's a truth claim about God. God can't look on evil. He can't tolerate wrong. Then he asks, why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked shallow up those more righteous, or swallow up, excuse me, those more righteous than themselves? So I know who you are, God. Unlike Jeremiah, he doesn't say, but I'm going to trust. I see because I'm worshipful. He's saying, why aren't you swallowing them up? Limited perspective. What we need is heaven's perspective. Heaven's perspective in Revelation 4.8. Because day and night, it says, the creatures around the throne of God affirm God for this. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. his glory okay that was quick problem of evil thoughts questions was it helpful understandable applicable those are the goal 
I, I want you to leave, we all, the three of us, Sam and Chris and I, we've talked and prayed about this class. We want you to leave with con- some confidence. Look, if you're one of these people that doubt God's goodness, come talk to us. We want you to, to press in and recognize that it's not illogical, it's not nonsense to believe that a good God, and a powerful God, um, an all-knowing God could have a very good reason for allowing evil in the world that he's created. Maybe, you know, you're in these debates. Maybe there's some tools here. We're available as a resource. Chris put our information on the outline, so reach out to us, email or phone. We can give you more resources. Um, and maybe you were drugged here this morning, <laughs> and I hope you too have been challenged and encouraged and lifted up. We've got... Um, we can end now or we've got a window of up to five minutes. So any points you want to hear more about or more clarification on? Yes, ma'am. Yep, Alvin Plantica. Mm, mm-hmm. That point was just that Ron Nash has this list of people that have just conceded to Alvin. And there's this sort of graveyard in the deductive um, the deductive uh, debate against for the problem of evil of people that have just abandoned that is illogical. So that's really my point of just kind of trying to be clever, didn't work. <laughs> Calling it a graveyard, that they're just tombstones of I used to believe, I used to think it's illogical, I used to think it's illogical, I used to think it's logical. And in the world of philosophy, it's just constantly about the debate. It's really not about the conclusions. You know, it's just this banter. And for someone to concede a point and walk away from it is just pretty amazing. And Nash makes that point. And, and actually, Ron Nash has some lectures you can listen to online that I thought were super helpful, too. If you, wanna, if you don't want to have to read the book, um, you, can, uh, you can look up just Ron Nash lecture, Problem of Evil, some of those things. Uh, Piper also preached a sermon at a BSF event about you know, God's goodness and the life of Christ and, and Joseph and some others. So pretty solid. Was that, was that helpful? Anything else? Maybe one point of clarification actually on Plantica that I think could be helpful. One thing that I think is a misnomer as you're talking to people in these debates is they start with the assumption that being all powerful means God can do anything. Now don't throw anything at me, but we know God can't actually do anything philosophically. We can't say that he can do everything. In other words, God can't create a world where he doesn't exist. Okay, that's, that's nonsense. God can't create a circle with four corners, right? That's, that's, not, that's not logical. Um, God can't create a married bachelor is a famous example that I've heard people use. So, so to say, well, God could create a world where there's no evil whatsoever and everything's perfectly good and storms never happen and all these things. And, and we say, well... Let's talk about free will. Let's talk about God's purpose. Let's talk about these things. And so, um, you know, that world is coming um, in heaven, but we have to know that God created this world. He has a good reason for the way it functions. That makes sense. That may have been helpful, may have been more confusing, but yeah. You're not allowed to ask me questions. What is it? How would you respond to someone who says, okay, you're telling me that um, Adam and Eve had free will. Mm-hmm. God made them good. And so 
take that back all the way to say where did the desire mm-hmm. come from to want to do evil? Yeah. Did you hear? So Chris asked, like, is God, I'm adding a little bit, culpable for evil because there was a desire within Adam and Eve, within the angels, to do evil, if that makes sense. And I, th- I think it's a great question, and I'd probably ask you the same question. Um, but I think that, to me, it, it's baked within free will. I think the argument, and you see Augustine make the argument um, and others, but that to have free will, that free will has to have the ability for some free decision-making. And so um, to, have a, to, to have a will that's only going to have good desires, for example, is not actually free. So it's actually necessary that a free will have the ability to make decisions that are against and contrary to the will of God. Does that make sense? And we, we twist desire. So let me use an example. Um, you know, there's a desire to protect your family. That's a good, healthy desire. But that desire can go AWOL. And we can get, we can go nuts on that one. Their sexual desire can be really healthy and good in its proper place, but that desire can be twisted and used for things as well. Does that make sense? So similarly, God gave them a desire to be in control, to manage the garden, um, they, you know, this mandate. They gave them a will to do that. And um, because they had the freedom to walk and the freedom to see, freedom to understand that beautiful things are great and a beautiful piece of fruit probably tastes really good. These are all desires. They had to take that fruit, and yet they corrupted those desires and turned them selfish. So that makes sense. Time is it here? We probably have a time for one more, too, if they're quick, or if you have anything, you don't have to. Okay, anything else? Anything you or Sam think we should address before we close? Sam's good. Yeah. Yeah, and in the Gospel of Luke, you see this story where um, Jesus is asked about some Galileans that, um, where, that Pilate had used in their blood in a sacrifice. And, and they asked this question about it. And Jesus says, well, do you think these Galileans are more sinful than the other Galileans? Is that why you think? God allowed that to happen? And he said, then he poses this back to him and says, you know, this tower of Siloam fell, killed 18 people. Are they more sinful than, you know, than everyone else? Is that why? Is it proportional? And it's interesting, Jesus' response just says, repent. We're all evil. We all need a savior. We all deserve the tower of Siloam to fall upon us and a thousand times more. So just repent. And that really, you know, his response to the problem of evil is like, yeah, repent. So that's uh, Luke. I don't remember the chapter. Do you guys, do you, anybody know the chapter? 14? I, I don't know. I better not say. Um, but it's in the Gospel of Luke. It is. Yep. It's good. 
Mm-hmm. That's good. good. Yeah, that, I'm going to attempt to repeat this for the mic, but that's super strong. Aaron, Aaron's making the point that, you know, we're facing these arguments continuously. Colossians tells us there's hollow and deceptive philosophies that depend upon human reason and tradition and basic principles of the world rather than Christ. So they make sense. They, they make sense to our reason. They're experientially make sense. The traditions are there, but they're hollow and deceptive. And one of the agents of grace, the means of grace God has given us to process that is the church. It's not faithless to say, I don't get this whole evil thing. I don't understand why I don't feel well, and I, but I do want to be a missionary, and yet I can't do this. I don't understand why I'm not married, but I have this vision for family or whatever. That's not faithless to do that. This is the context for that. This is the place, you know, to dialogue. And so just feel freedom to do that. And you don't have to go you know, read a book this thick, but go meet with somebody that you, you watch their life, and you know, they know the word and they're prayerful and just have those conversations. Um, so that's a great, great point. I appreciate you pointing that out. It's, it's safe. You shouldn't be afraid of it. Look, these are brilliant people that are debating on both sides. And so, you know, there are questions you're going to have, Brad. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's good. Good. Yeah, good. Brad's making a distinction. Logically, yes, okay, there's academic things, but that honestly isn't that frankly, that's satisfying when you're suffering, right? But experientially, we actually do go through hard things. We do go through suffering. And our only hope really is the cross. Christ himself, his own journey, Philippians 2, I mean, he left, he became man, he suffered, he, he, he lived up against all the temptations that we have. And in that, he was obedient to death on the cross. And our destiny as Christians is his destiny. We suffer as he suffered, but we we get to be resurrected as he was resurrected. We get to live for eternity in heaven as Christ is there. And so that's our real hope in it. And that's where Jeremiah didn't say, let me get that textbook out and say, gosh, I'm really depressed. What's, what's that book on depression? I just read it. He's like, but I know this hope that you are who you are. I know the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy's never coming in. Even I don't feel him, his mercy is there. And, um, and it's important, as, and to add what Aaron said, to process that along with people that are on the same journey as well. Good stuff. And really, if you think about this whole problem of evil, you know, we, we had a mandate of, a, it's called a covenant of works. We were supposed to obey God perfectly. Our original parents didn't do that. Well, that covenant has to be fulfilled. And Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works on earth, lived in this life in the midst of evil and suffering and all these things and temptation, and perfectly lived out the of works, but we also had a penalty due sin, and Jesus' substitutionary atonement paid that penalty due sin. So He took that journey for us, and that's our. That's why He's our only hope for ultimate deliverance through this thing of suffering that, that we deal with. But in the midst of it, we don't lose hope either. Um, so, well, guys, this has been really good. I hope it's been profitable, and uh, let me close this in prayer. 
Father, uh, your mercies are new every morning. God, we want to put you on display. We don't want to reduce any of your nature, Father, to, um, to sort of placate those who want to attack our faith. I'm grateful for you, Father, and grateful for Christ, for that work on the cross. God, help us to respond by faith. Help us to, to walk by faith, God, and live as joyful people in the midst of, of hard times. In Christ's name, amen.